Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Timon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. And Karen Koch-Tesman, Senior Editor. All right, Karen, good to have you on the BioCentury San Carlos, California offices, East and West, both on the pod today. City of Good Living. City of Good Living. On this week's pod, the Nordic track for financing biotechs, the Biden administration's embrace of an IP waiver for COVID vaccines, and long COVID's big tent needs to get more precise. Let's turn to Scandinavia, our colleague in Europe who has run off to dinner and left us with his notes, Stephen Hansen spoke with a bevy of investors and executives in Scandinavia to see what's been happening there. As we know, we saw two of the biggest ever Series A rounds from the region in just the past two weeks. The region has a pharma history and a healthy risk appetite, and that's given Scandinavia a vibrant translational environment and a broad interest in investing in the life sciences. Simone, what can you tell me about the translational environment in Scandinavia and what makes it so strong? Well, it it is an interesting situation. Scandinavia has some standout institutes like the Karolinska. One thing that is interesting, though, is that in the story we did last week looking at recent spin-outs from academia and industry and breaking it down by academic institution, I was actually surprised to see that Karolinska didn't feature among the leaderboard, the top 15. And I'm not sure if this is a state of flux in the region. I noticed something from Stephen's story that's interesting, which is that he looked at IPOs since 2013 by stage of development and saw that I think it's roughly a quarter of the IPOs in Scandinavia were preclinical, which was a bigger proportion than in continental Europe or the US. That stuck out to me because I have been looking across Europe and in a shorter time frame, 2018 to 2020, for Bioequity Europe. And I know you're going to give a little bit of information about all the cool things that we're going to feature in the upcoming conference. But the thing that I've noticed is, in fact, there have been no preclinical IPOs, at least above $50 million in the whole of Europe in the last three years, whereas that's a rising trend in the US. The Scandinavia data going back to 2013 makes me wonder whether there's a sort of a more recent shift in the country, maybe away from translation, maybe they're growing the companies a little bit better. But I do think that the landscape overall is one that is changing a little bit in Europe. This is coming on the back of a year where European innovation, I would argue, has been at the center of getting us out of this pandemic. And so there's, you know, Europe, Scandinavia, these places are still faced with this essential conundrum of having really great science and working out ways to turn that into many companies, not just some that are really good, but many companies. I do know that funding isn't nearly as hard to come by in the Nordic region as elsewhere in Europe. And 
Part of that has to do with Novo, of course. Novo has a family of funds that invest very early, works with incubators. Uh, HealthCap is in the region. Sunstone Life Science Ventures is in the region. And all of these VCs really act as anchors in the region. And I think, Karen, as we, we were getting ready for this conversation, you had made a, a comment about friends and family also backing yeah. these companies. Yeah, one of the takeaways I got from Stephen's story was that you have folks in the Scandinavian region who have experience from biopharmas there and who are therefore knowledgeable and proceed as kind of individual investors, which on one hand, it seems like has contributed to making early stage capital easier to get. But on the other hand, it seemed like there was some tension between when you get those kinds of investors, they're perhaps more resistant to being diluted or the types of shares they get makes it more challenging to then bring in more investors later on. I was wondering, it seems if you have the, these types of investors there, if they started forming firms with the Scandinavian answers, the 5AMs and Versants, et cetera, that could be pretty interesting to see. Yeah. And speaking of that, Karen, I think that the appetite for risk among those friends and family investors, it's not just limited to the private side, but it carries through to the public markets. There's a variety of local exchanges that offer relatively easy paths to raising capital when you compare it with going the more time-consuming and expensive NASDAQ route. However, when you're raising money on these exchanges, it is in smaller amounts. What we see is that the Scandinavian companies are going public much earlier than biotechs in other parts of Europe. Right, but with less money and they may not make the $50 million threshold that I was talking about. And I think this just keeps coming back with the European biotechs is that the scale, the growth capital, there's this huge jump. Most of the funding that we've seen for the, what we call the money magnet companies is in phase two and after. And there's just this big jump from phase one. And I think that getting from that seed stage and early stage to building bigger, sustainable companies remains a challenge there. That's true. All these little companies just need to put up their poster of GenMab. And come to Bioequity Europe. And come to Bioequity Europe. Yeah, GenMab, I mean, that company there, it's almost a household name, at least in our industry. And you look not too far back and they were once a sub-billion dollar market cap company and now they're valued at $24 billion. They're a mid-cap, and that's happened in just the past decade. But Simone, you've teased it a few times now, so we're going to really be talking about all of this and what's next for Europe at our 21st Bioequity Europe conference. It'll be an all-digital event. It kicks off next Monday and runs through next Wednesday, so the 17th to the 19th. And what's more, we'll be taking the BioCentury This Week podcast on the virtual road to bioequity, at which point Stephen will grace us with his presence. We'll have a few special guests. We'll have Graziano from Sofanova Partners. We'll have Chinese investor Da Lu will join us on the 18th. We've been preparing. We got a chance to review the draft version of McKinsey's bioequity report this past week. It's chock full of data on how innovation hotspots, as Simone has been talking about, will help drive this next act for European biotech. The report also incorporates learnings from European biotech executives 
and investors that spoke with McKinsey in preparation for the report. And for the first time, the McKinsey Bioequity Report unveils a biotech innovation index that will compare European biotech with US and China biotech on key metrics related to discovery, translation, growth capital, and impact. We've got 140 and counting companies presenting. They have been selected by our editorial team. We'll have two pre-seed showcases, an academic spin-out session, China-Asia roadshow track, and much, much more. We'll also have our first ever academic spin-out showcase featuring fresh new stories from Trinity College and the Royal College of Surgeons, Ireland. You can register and see the full schedule on our website, bioequityeurope.com. Well, Steve, I want to turn to you. Twitter nearly broke last week when the Biden administration came out and embraced IP waivers for COVID-19 vaccines. It sent a shockwave through the U.S. biopharma industry and it is reverberating far beyond the offices of manufacturers of pandemic prophylactics. I think it only took AOC about an hour after the announcement to call for IP to be waived for diabetes medicines. So Steve, you've been watching this closely, you've been talking to your usual network. Can you give us the lay of the land here? Yeah, well, I think, it's likely to be a symbolic declaration. That's the thing to start with, because I think Germany and other countries that don't want to see their companies' technologies handed free to Chinese companies are going to block it at the WTO. That's the most likely outcome. But saying it's symbolic doesn't mean it's not important. This is the first big policy decision the Biden White House has made related to the biopharma ecosystem, and it did it with its eyes wide open. The Trump administration acted impetuously, and some people would say out of ignorance, in this case, the White House knew exactly what it was doing. They know how important IP is to biopharma companies. The CEOs of Pfizer, Moderna, Novavax, and other companies spoke with top administration officials before this decision was announced. There are people like Eric Lander in the White House who understand the industry. I've been told that pharma staff told the CEOs on its board just an hour before the IP waiver policy was announced that the White House had been persuaded against doing it. I think they made this decision because they put good politics, domestic and international, ahead of good policy. And that's one of the things that really worries people in the industry. The other thing I think is that there's a sense that this sets a precedent, that the notion of seizing or restricting IP had been a fringe idea before this, and now it's going to become part of the discussion whenever access or pricing are discussed in Washington. Steve, there's so much to unpack here and several different angles. So I want to start with this one. We heard Germany say that they did not take the same approach as Biden. And a lot of your commentary and others is suggesting that this may not actually happen. If I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that doesn't actually change the whole conversation going forward. It opens the door in the future. Is is that what you're saying? Regardless of whether it it happens in this pandemic now. It it normalizes it, the idea. And what one biopharma CEO said to me is, look, three years ago, four years ago, if anybody had said that international reference pricing was going to be something that a Republican president and Republicans in Congress would embrace, they would have been laughed out of Washington. It wouldn't be something that you you would have thought. 
The Trump administration embraced the idea of international reference pricing. They call it most favored nation. Now it's part of every discussion. It's something that the Biden administration is going to be able to reach for. I expect that they will. And when they do it, it's going to be pretty difficult for Republicans to call it a, a radical notion that should be rejected out of hand. Yeah, I, I think mean, it, it. So I think that the, the key thing is that that this really does set a precedent and it also shapes it shapes the relationship between biopharma companies and the Biden administration. I think it's being considered in the boardrooms, especially pharma companies, as a kind of a breach of trust that they'd expected and they'd been led to believe that the Biden administration wasn't going to do this. And then the fact that they did it, it it's more than a disappointment. I think it, it makes them rethink the idea that they can negotiate in good faith, both with the White House and with Democrats in but, Congress. So I think one thing to introduce here is exactly what you're talking about, which is industry's response. We've talked about this and you've written about it, that they know drug pricing changes are going to happen. They're going to come. Industry needs to work out the lines it can draw. It's got to accept some changes and how does it leverage its position? How does it make those most effective for patients? What its priorities are going to be? I think one thing that's really interesting is we published a guest commentary from former Gilead executives and they proposed this middle ground, they call it, in the IP waiver debate for COVID-19 vaccines. And they looked at HIV and HCV medicines, the way Gilead had handled that in low-income countries with a voluntary licensing model. And another person wrote to me and said, well, AstraZeneca has actually walked down the road of voluntary licensing already. So I do wonder whether there's anything in that that could carry forward into the bigger debate or if industry can by favor with some policies like that that could help it in the negotiations? Well, well, look, I think that there's a lot of different strands of thought in Washington, but one of them is that, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the table, it's time to negotiate a deal, and bio is in the midst of an effort to try to figure out what the terms of a deal like that would be. There are other people who basically say, look, the Democrats need to have every single Democrat on board in order to get something through the Senate right now. There's a possibility, if not a probability, that one House or the other will flip in 2022. So they can just keep delaying things. There are at least two Democratic members of the Senate, Bob Menendez and Kirsten Sinema, who the farm industry believes will be very sympathetic to its views. And they can just block things. So the debate now is, I think, is on the fundamental question of whether they really do have to negotiate, whether it really is inevitable, or can they just kick the can down the road again? All right. Well, and that guest commentary is available on our website. One of the authors was Clifford Samuel. Now, he worked closely with John Martin, the late leader of Gilead and Greg Alton, who was Gilead's chief patient officer. And they really built that global access program in the air, as they say, while flying. Samuel led it for about 20 years in 140 countries. And John Martin got together with Tommy Thompson, who was the HHS secretary at the time. And, and they created a regulatory pathway that was quite cool. It, it, it basically set it up so that as soon as Gilead got a drug approved, 
or an expanded label, it would trigger an approval for some of the top generics companies in India to also get approval to make the drug and then to begin selling it in low and middle income countries around the world. And one of the things, you know, that I think is really interesting about that also is that Gilead got like zero recognition for that in the public sphere. And I think that's one of the things that's different now. If you say go out in the street now and you say the word Pfizer to anyone, they're going to come back right away and start talking about this vaccine that is helping to save the world, which 10 years ago, if you'd gone out and you'd said the word Pfizer, most people would have come back and said Viagra. I mean, the difference is startling. And I think that also shapes the debate here a little bit. Very much so. Well, hey, let's stick with Pfizer. Yeah, it is funny. You're at like the supermarket and you hear people like, did you get the Pfizer or the Moderna? Me, I'm a J&J man. And that decision I made largely based on the Saturday Night Live skit, Boomer got the vac. So if you <laughs> if you haven't seen that yet, do check it out. Hey, one big issue now is long COVID. The emerging consensus is that long COVID should be addressed as a collection of distinct syndromes. And Karen, you have been chatting with different folks about this. What can you tell us? Well, there still is a need for long COVID to speak with one voice from the point of view of advocacy, because there's still a long ways to go in terms of convincing physicians that there is a a real need to address here. It's not just in people's heads. There is a need to push for funding and research and access to benefits. And so I I think that the long COVID umbrella is still useful from an advocacy level, but from the point of view of developing therapeutics and, and really treating this, it's such a heterogeneous mix of things. And especially given how increasingly we're seeing drug development in cancer and outside of it going into more and more precision type approaches, what type of a certain disease do you have? What are the biomarkers that point to the mechanisms that indicate how you should target something? I think that kind of level of understanding and segmentation is going to be important for companies to actually get into this fight and develop therapies for long COVID patients. And so we've got a couple examples of that already. One is PureTech and another is a PureTech subsidiary or affiliate, Achille. PureTech's taking their idiopathic lung fibrosis candidate into patients who have recovered from COVID. Notably, they have been hospitalized and had a certain type of damage that's visible on their lungs. If you restore lung function, you will you know, oxygenate tissues, et cetera, and hopefully even help with other follow-on symptoms like brain fog and things that COVID patients experience. But it's targeting a very specific population of people with persistent COVID. On the other hand, Achille they're focusing less on the profile of the patient. They just had to have had a confirmed COVID and still be having cognitive dysfunction. The way they're going at it is for people experiencing the type of cognitive attention deficits that a lot of people report with long COVID, no matter how they came by it, were they hospitalized or not, they're trying out their digital therapy for ADHD in those patients in collaboration with some academics. It's going to be, I think, important to give companies a, a foot, a specific foothold to get into these diseases. Because if speaking with physicians and patient advocates and hearing some congressional testimony, the theme over and over again comes up that it's not one disease, it's a cluster of at least three or four, maybe even 10. 
there's that kind of organ specific pathology of going after the lung function, going after a cognitive deficit. But there's another sort of thread, which is going after the underlying pathology. So some people believe that there's a viral reservoir that might be hanging around. And in some cases, there's evidence for that, for example, in the olfactory bulbs of some patients who have long-term loss of smell. Other people believe that it's really, it's an out-of-control inflammation. The virus is gone, but it's the immune system that's really turning on and possibly in an autoimmune way. And so the answer might be that you have these different mechanisms playing out in different patient populations. So it's going to be important to figure out what an individual patient is dealing with. And so hopefully biomarkers will be a, a big part of that. Immune profiling, so looking at TCR and BCR sequences or antigen reactivity is a big part of how people are looking to characterize long COVID patients. And there's some interesting studies coming out of Yale, uh, Ikiko Iwasaki and Aaron Ring's group working on that in collaboration with others. But as one patient advocate pointed out, it's very important that the folks conducting those studies be clear about who's being represented in those immune profiling samples. And she gave an example of a TCR profiling study that featured mostly folks in their 60s and 70s who had been hospitalized. And that's very different from a lot of long COVID patients who were never hospitalized. They're in their 30s or 40s. And so just getting specific there. All right. Well, that's a lot to chew on there, Karen. And I think NIH is also running the ACTIVE-4 trial. Is, is that correct? So NIH, they put out a call for grant proposals for long COVID. They've got a bunch of money sort of squared away for that. And they got, I think, over 200 proposals that they were evaluating. In the next couple of weeks, they're going to announce what projects got funded. And the first pass is sort of more focusing on understanding the mechanisms rather than, say, conducting big clinical trials of new agents. But one thing Francis Collins brought up was that in the active four trial where they're looking at anticoagulants, which are suspected to be part of one of the things that could be driving some forms of long COVID, they've got an arm that looks at convalescent patients and looking at their risk, preventing their risk of uh, thrombotic events. And actually just one last thing is that prevention is something that came up in a couple different forums where there it's perhaps less important to be precise because you're trying to just prevent the thing from happening in the first place. And there's a lot of hope that vaccines, but also therapy to treat acute infection like MABS, we're seeing them really tamp down on severe acute disease. And there's a big hope that will also tamp down on the emergence of long COVID complications. Excellent. Well, Karen's story is in front of our paywall. It is on our website at www.biocentury.com. So if you want to keep pace with what she's thinking about on this, uh, definitely give that article a read. All right. Thanks for that, Karen. Let's turn to our deal in focus. Venture funding is pouring into gene therapy companies, many of which are developing next-gen tech to overcome the dosing, tissue selectivity, immunogenicity, and manufacturing challenges of the first-gen products. Now, we have seen three sizable rounds in the past week or so, the most recent of which is this week's deal in focus. Dino Therapeutics raised $100 million in its Series A round, which was led by A16Z. So Dino is a three-year-old Cambridge, Massachusetts company 
it stands a little apart from some of the other AAV companies in that those companies are developing their own gene therapy pipelines, but Dino's business model involves creating its AAV vectors for partners. And now it hopes to use the new funding to advance its existing partnerships and take on new partners, as well as expand its tech into new target organs. The company officially debuted a year ago with a $9 million seed round and a machine learning platform to identify functional engineered AAV vectors for ophthalmic and musculoskeletal diseases. Now it's looking into getting into CNS and liver disorders. That's what founder and CEO Eric Kelstick told my colleague Lauren Martz last week when they spoke. And Kelsick said that the new funding could allow the company to also expand into tissues that haven't been successfully addressed by gene theories, such as the, the lung, heart, and kidney. Now, another interesting thing about this company is that Kelsick led a team developing the tech underlying the company's platform in George Church's lab at the Weiss Institute, obviously a big name there. Now, as I mentioned, there have been sort of a flurry of these financings, the other companies raising money. So Dino's was a $100 million Series A round. That was May 6th. Three days earlier, Affinia raised $110 million Series B. That was led by EcoR1 and Farallon. And then the prior week, we saw a new company come out, Capsida, which debuted with 50 million in its Series A round on April 29th. Lead investors there, Versant and Beth Seidenberg's Westlake. Now, Lauren took a step back and looked at all of the gene therapy companies raising venture rounds this year. So Dino, Affinia, and Capsida, they are three of six companies doing engineered AAVs that have raised venture money this year. The others are Stride Bio, Vector Y, and Lexio. And that, among all of the different types of gene therapy company, that's the largest group. We also have two companies doing wild-type AAVs, Jaguar Gyroscope that have raised money. Jaguar has double dipped. They raised $139 million in a Series B back in April, led by Deerfield and Lilly. That followed an undisclosed round in February, also led by Deerfield. And Gyroscope, Forbeyond company, raised $149 million in its Series C in March cool little table here that Lauren put together. You can find it on our website. We published it on May 6th. That's all we have time for this week. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. The orchestra is holding a benefit Saturday, May 22nd in Cambridge. You can learn more about this benefit by going to 
kendallsquareorchestra.org. They support great causes, so would love it if you go on there, check it out, and support them. Until next week, when we resurface virtually at BioCentury's BioEquity Europe Conference.